0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
0: This is the BBC. Hello, I'm Helen Mark, and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. There's... A security gate at the entrance to the Nepp Castle estate and you might expect it to be a vast wrought-iron structure but actually in this case it's just a wooden pole across the gateway so I'll just press the button and hopefully oh, there we go just swings open now Nepp Castle is a 3,500 acre estate in West Sussex which has over the past 17 years or so been given over to nature in a major rewilding project where the forces of nature are the driving force in how the landscape looks and is worked but in today's need for food production is giving over vast tracts of land to nature can it be justified This estate is run by Charlie Burrell and his wife, Isabella Tree. And uh, there was a message for us to meet Isabella underneath a spreading oak tree. And this has to be it. Isabella, hello. This is the oak tree they said I'd come and find you under.
2: (laughs) Well, well found. Yes, absolutely. This is known as the nep oak. And it's about 550 years old so it's got a girth of about seven meters it's an absolute giant 500 years of growth on an estate yeah amazing
0: i know why you would want to bring me here because it's such an impressive tree but
2: well this was how the kind of penny dropped really um about our whole rewilding project and At the time, we were having real trouble with farming. We're on very, very heavy soil, very heavy clay. We've been farming for about 17 years intensively ourselves, but, you know, the family going back had been farming for more than 100 years here. And really, our arable and dairy farming was was really hitting the buffers. And quite by chance, we were looking at this tree, and we thought we had to do something about it. You can see in the middle there, it's tied together with tank chains. But this was sort of beginning to shift and move in about 2000. We thought we'd just better see if we could do something about it. And we asked a wonderful man called Ted Green. And he came and had a look at this tree. And he was really not worried about this tree at all. He said, it'll see out another 500 years or so, it, with any luck. Um, but what he did look, he just turned his back, as we are now. And you can see all these oaks here, which are looking quite kind of staggy. And he said, those are the ones that are in trouble. And we'd never even looked at them. What happened to your mindset then when he'd given you that piece of information? Suddenly we were hit by this kind of big feeling of responsibility. You know, those trees are kind of semaphoring distress and we are the people who are doing it to them. And at that time, uh, the Countryside Stewardship Scheme was looking for projects like this to restore parks. So we were lucky and we got a restoration grant to restore 350 acres of the park. This was all plowed then. The
0: land that I'm looking at now, this Yes, land. it was all
2: part of the Dig for Victory campaign, so every available inch of land was ploughed up. So we inherited this tradition of, of just ploughing right up to the front door. So we got this grant, and we were able to turn the 350 acres around the house back into park, so what it always had been. And then we introduced fallow deer to graze the, the park. And it just felt like an absolute revelation. We were sitting in the middle of the Serengeti suddenly. And so we began to think, well, perhaps we could take the rest of the land out of intensive farming and perhaps we could roll roll it out across the whole estate and do
0: a naturalistic grazing project for nature. But it gets called rewilding, doesn't it? And there's this instant thought, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to see a pack of wolves coming across (laughs) Or, you know, the beavers working away at the riverway and things. Well, not yet. We would (laughs) love beavers here.
2: It's a very difficult concept to to get across, and particularly the re, I think, trips people up, because people think you're trying to recapture the past. You're trying to get the land like it was before. Well, we know we can never do that.
0: Well, if we could explore a little bit more, leave our 500-year-old oak behind and try and get an idea of how this works across the landscape. So we're um, aboard a... Small truck. <laughs> it's a
2: Kawasaki mule. And this is what we get around in, particularly this time of year. It's so, so muddy. And that was the problem with the farming. You know how um, the Inuit are supposed to have dozens and dozens of word, different words for snow. In the, in the Sussex dialect, we've got about 30 words for different kinds of mud. And after about September, it's almost impossible to get onto the land at all. Oh, it's nice to have that machine switched off. It's <laughs> <light>. <laughs> it <was> quite noisy. <laughs> so really what happened here is very different to the landscape you've just seen in the Repton Park. We couldn't get funding for quite some years to get ring fencing to enclose this area so that we could put livestock in it. So what we did really was just take the fields leave them as they came out of whatever crop they'd been in. We just left them. But that is what has produced such fantastic results down here because the vegetation was allowed to take off. You've suddenly got scrub appearing. You've got your thorny brambles, protecting saplings coming up, the oaks coming up, being planted by jays. Suddenly you've got vegetation pulsing. And then when we did finally get the funding to to get the fencing around the outside, and then we reintroduce the livestock. That's when you've got this battle between the grazing mouths and the, and the vegetation, and that's when you get the messy margins and the, the, the chances for biodiversity to take off.
0: Right, so where are we heading, Izzy? Well, I'm
2: gonna take you up to one of our, our tree viewing platforms. We've put six platforms up. Up you go, thank you. So we're standing in the middle of the southern block, so th- this is the wildest and woolliest part of the whole estate. This is where we have the real competition between vegetation succession and all the grazing animals. They're battling it out, creating these really messy margins that you can see beneath us.
0: So instead of having your cattle in a field, you have them wandering about the whole estate. The same with pigs, horses,
2: red deer and fallow red deer. deer,
0: fallow deer,
2: bison. Did I hear at one point? We well, that would be very interesting. One day we would love to have bison.
0: Okay. Because what you were doing here back in 2000 was very new. But at the same time it had to sustain a living for you as farmers. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, people might wonder how can you do it? Let it go wild and then live off it. Yeah, absolutely. We we we
2: couldn't do it simply out of altruistic reasons or because we felt we love nature or something like that. It has to work, it's got to function. So we have these various in- income streams. So we have the meat production, which is very big for us. We have all our buildings that we let out now, all our old defunct agricultural buildings that are now converted for office space. And now, of course, because we've got all this wildlife coming back, we're doing safaris
0: and camping and glamping. I mean, a lot of positives. I can you know, understand what you're saying. But you're able to do this because you're in a position of huge privilege. You have this vast acreage. And, well, I don't mean to be presumptuous, and the wealth that goes with that. It's not something that well, everybody had, could do.
2: We had to do it because we were losing a huge amount of money farming. We couldn't carry on farming. And we had to find alternative ways that would, be, that would make sense, that would make financial sense for us. And I think that makes sense whether you're a large or a small farmer.
0: But it can't all be like this because we have to produce our own vegetables, our own cereals. We have to make the land work for us as a population. Absolutely. Of course, we still have to be growing food. Mm -hmm. But there is a great
2: opportunity here for marginal land like ours, which was never good for intensive farming, to be allowed to do something wilder and freer. You, You don't have to do something really perhaps as dramatic as we're doing. You could do something even... You know, just with bits of land that you know are unproductive and will never be productive, you know, you can just let go.
0: But there's a fear of not having an income. At least you feel if you're planting something, your potatoes or your, you know, you've got your dairy herd, you're going to get something out of it, even though it might not be very much these days. Whereas they look across a wide open savannah landscape and they think, you know, how am I going to make a living out of that?
2: But ultimately I think the question is... Are we going to want to do this? Are we going to want to pay for this? Because farmers can't just do it on their own. And I think when subsidies begin to change, as they surely will after Brexit, are we going to start paying for, for other ecosystem services that the land can provide? Are we going to start providing farmers not just for producing food, but also for treating their soil responsibly and for
0: the things that we need for, for health, really? The key here is that this is marginal land. This is not prime agricultural food production
2: landscape. Absolutely. That's the key. That's why we're, we're doing what we're doing already. If farming had been making us money, if it had been working, we'd still be doing it. But it wasn't. And so this is what we found we can do instead. And it's brought the land
0: back to productivity in a different kind of a way. Now Izzy has headed back to the castle and she's left me here in the midst of these long-horned cattle I am almost able to reach out and touch one of them which is staring at me It's got these great horns the most beautiful chestnut colour with cream underbelly and this white stripe along its back and they all have that similar sort of pattern they're beginning to gather round me now this is Pat To coming. He's the stockman. Looks after these animals. Hello, Pat. Hello, Helen. Hello. I was getting a little bit nervous there because they were all staring at me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: they're, uh, they're very, very curious animals. But,
0: uh, but, docile?
3: Very docile. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's one of the one of the reasons we picked them. They're a traditional breed. Um, they've just come off the rare breeds list, and they are very dramatic-looking animals. They do really well on just meagre meagre rations. Um, they're easy calving.
0: How many are there in the herd on Nepestate?
3: We have three herds and the total head is about 350.
0: It doesn't sound like an awful lot of animal across 3,500 acres of land.
3: No, it doesn't. What decides stocking levels is basically when we get into the depths of the winter. So so we're in beginning of March, something like that. We go out and we'll look at the animals, we'll look at the, their body condition and we'll see what available fodder is still left for them because we don't, we don't feed them. So they need to survive on what's... So once the grass stops growing, that's got to last them. So, so they will browse and, um, on, on mm.
0: scrub
3: and trees. Um, so that, that decides the stocking level.
0: So you're not feeding these cattle, they have to live off the land? Yes. So people may look across these cattle and think, oh my goodness, it's looking a bit... I can see it's rips.
3: Yeah, we try to keep them as natural as possible. So um, we, don't, we don't feed unless there's a welfare issue. Um, and what we do is they build their fat reserves up um, through the spring, summer, and autumn, and then in the winter, they live off so of what they can forage and that, that fat, fat reserve. Yeah.
0: And these cattle are for meat production.
3: Yes, the the primary thing is is what they're doing now is they walk around and they poach the ground, and so they make different size holes in the in the in the, <laughs> the sward, and that allows for um, different plants and insects and animals to to, to thrive. But yes, yes, they and um, we do we do farm them because we 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 sell probably. 80 or 90 animals a year for, for meat.
0: Well, what's the job in hand?
3: OK, so we want to move these cattle, and in these large areas, it's it can be very difficult. This block um, is a 1,200-acre block, and it's basically just a ring fence around the outside. And so when we need to get them in, we needed to find a different way of doing it. And um, Charlie discovered this American guy who's uh, now dead, but um, called Bud Williams. They called him the cow whisperer um, because he could move animals just by using pressure and release.
0: You mean move forward, fall back?
3: Yes, Whereas, so you don't walk directly at you the animals, you, you keep calm, mm-hmm. um, you let them know they're there, and you never walk directly at them. Um, well, I thought
0: the principle was just to leave them alone, but yes. actually what we're doing is here, we're trying to manage them a little bit?
3: Well, you do have to manage them a little bit because um, government regulations and stuff, so calves have to be tagged within a um, certain amount of days. and. There's welfare issue, so if, if something is injured or sick, you need to catch them up.
0: Should we do that?
3: Yeah. What did Let's you
0: call the technique again? Was um,
3: the man is uh, called Bud Williams, so we call it budding. Budding. Um, Pressure and release. Move that way a little bit more, Helen. That's it. And they should come together. And then walk towards them. They're just wondering what we're doing.
0: <laughs> People live and work across the estate they're not necessarily involved in the farming practice within the estate um, and one couple um, have moved into a, a converted barn here Michael and Felicity Kingerley and they came here when the rewilding was well actually just before it began hello hello,
4: hello.
2: hello.
0: hello. welcome thank you welcome. you and Michael moved here before they started this 20 rewilding. Just under 20, years. 20 years ago we mm. came here. And where yeah. did you move from? From sh- uh, Surrey. Surrey Hills. And when you came here and you looked out across the fences beyond the garden, what was the view, Felicity? What were you looking at? It was
5: a lovely open view of fields and trees. The, the field that we look out onto is a 27-acre field. So, as you can imagine, just a view of that, the South Downs and the the river the lake down here sounds idyllic it was and we now have this wilding area with no view of the lake well
0: before that then it had been in crop so cereals maybe or yes
5: yes we had uh, we saw cereal we saw um, wheat Mm-hmm. beans we saw rape mm-hmm. they went through the usual sort of cycle mm-hmm. yes. yeah that's
0: what you wanted in absolutely we were mm. thrilled with thrilled with it <laughs> can you <Wow>. remember
5: when <laughs> when it started to change 2004 about 2004 it started to be uh, a, a wild area with brambles and, n- and nettles and everything that was alien to us after the fields and did you express
0: how you felt that you were a bit concerned? Oh yes indeed, oh, yes. especially
5: over <laughs> some of the weeds that we were fighting like ragwort and things like that and when the Tamworth pigs came they enjoyed the roots of the docks and oh, gradually they all disappeared including a bed of bracken which was on the on, on the fence line over there which uh, which I was delighted to see as well. <laughs>
0: So were you beginning to feel
5: differently about oh, yes. this change in the landscape? We were feeling different and we couldn't wait for it to change enough in order to introduce animals. The excitement of having the first deer here and looking out of your windows to see deer feeding just out here was absolute magic, wasn't it? Very exciting to see this, about 12 deer heads through the fence. So you've experienced the, the change,
0: yes all around you, taking away perhaps at the start what you really
5: felt was a rural idyll. Yes, yes, absolutely. And now we have the most fantastic place to live amongst. We think we're very, very lucky. Have you become a little rewilded Felicity? Yes, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, (laughs) totally. (laughs) It's the fact that the hedges aren't cut anymore. You have to get used to that. Uh, But you get different bird life in hedges that are not trimmed.
0: Well, it's interesting. You're talking about bird life. You know, we're coming into the evening now, and they're going to be doing some bird ringing. So that's where I'm going now. So maybe I'll see some of those new species you that have come well into indeed. this landscape. Yes, yeah.
4: Yes. yeah. Um, so if you look at the crown feathers, Laurie, Um and you just I'm to with Tony around. Davis
0: who's with the British Trust for Ornithology and he was just handling there a field fair and with us as well is Penny Green who is an ecologist on the NEP estate and
1: we've come at this particular time of the evening because Penny We are hoping to catch some red wing and some field fair in our nets. and you are I know still learning how to do this <laughs> after how long? Um, this is nearly three years I've been learning. And where are the nets for? Ah, they're just in this field over here. Should go up and have a look at them. Yes, yes. Uh, I can hear the birds song already,
0: and that is the call of the.
1: That's the call the of th- the redwing. So we're trying to lure the redwing in by playing their lovely song, which is called the Latvian love song. No, <laughs> no. It was probably recorded in Latvia, I can guess, and it's a the, the sort of beautiful sort of breeding song, and so. That you know, that's what's attracting them to come into the scrub here. It's not normally a, a song that you'd hear at this time of year because it's you know one they'd use for breeding.
0: Well, we're trying to lure the birds towards the net, which you have set up in what is quite sort of
1: rough scrub ground, shrubby growth, young trees, yeah. buried bushes. That's it. So, we've got lots of blackthorn and hawthorn, so they're good for berries at this time of year for, for thrushes to come and feed in. Oh wow, (laughs) Laurie's got a jay out of the net, (laughs) which is another important species here at NET because they're helping us to grow oak saplings, so they're going around burying the acorns in the autumn uh, and uh, they can... Uh, bury hundreds of acorns every autumn that they think they're going to go back and feed on and obviously some of them get left behind or lost and those o- uh, acorns are ones that will go on to, to become oak saplings that will you know, be our open grown oaks of the future here no, I can't actually see the net it's um, quite a fine net and it's got these little pockets and you can see these little shelf strings with pockets yeah. so if the birds fly they can't see the net, they fly towards it, attracted to that song and then they uh, just fall into one of those pockets and then we can go along and pick them out of the pockets very carefully uh, and, and see what we've got. Okay. Now what have we got in the bag so far? So
4: we have got one jay and two red wings.
1: Why do you want to do this Penny? here it's really helping us to understand what's using the scrub uh, so in the summer we know it's fantastic for, uh, for nesting birds, in the autumn it's a really important uh, place for um, uh, passage migrants to stop off and feed on insects and berries on their way through and at this time of year we're just finding out how important it is for these winter thrushes as a, a roosting site but also for feeding on the berries and the more open parts of these fields are fantastic for insects and worms because we're not putting any pesticides down anymore the soil is full of um, you know, lots of food for for these birds to come feed on but if the ethos is about rewilding and not interfering with nature aren't you
0: doing that by catching the birds and handling them
1: yeah i suppose we are interfering by catching them but we're not going to be having an impact on these birds i don't feel we're interfering in a way that's you know going to be detrimental to them but also at the same time it's helping us learn more i appreciate that once you get a bird you have to work very quickly yes so let's join tony at the back of the car um we squelch through the mud, I can feel my fingers getting a bit chilly. <laughs> I'll put them in my pockets to warm them up. Now what's
0: critical at this point is we have Redwing in cloth sacks hanging in the back of the car. And Penny, this is where you're going to get your next lesson in bird ringing from Tony. Absolutely. You've taken the bird out. Talk to me yes. about it. Oh,
1: Look, it just fits into your hand. It's so gorgeous. Sweet. It's, it's quite a smooth thrush. Oh. It's just such a beautiful russet kind of red, red. russet oh. red colour. absolutely beautiful. So we're going to, um, first of all, we're going to put a ring. So um, just going to get a, a ring out of the box. Not everybody, Tony, agrees with bird
0: ringing. Um, they feel it's a stressful experience for the bird. You've been doing it for 100 years. Do you still need to be at this process?
4: Uh, yes, we do. Um, first thing I'd say in, in terms of the stress uh, side of things... It would be silly to claim that there's no stress. And so any any stress that there is is very transitory uh, and and it's really not having a long-term effect. But in terms of is it still worth doing it, yes, because we're looking at things like the mortality rates. But even with the movements, um, you know, things change. OK, so if you measure the wing for me now. OK. So you need two. That's it. Make sure it's held up against the stop on the ruler.
1: I'm going to say 121 centimetres on that one.
4: I, I hope you're not. <laughs> you're going to say 121 millimetres. Oh,
1: 121 millimetres. <laughs> Otherwise,
4: you've got a mute <laughs> swan there.
1: And <laughs> you've <laughs> failed. <laughs> I'm going to say 121 millimetres on that one. <laughs> so now I can pass this over to Tony, who will check the age and, and the wing measurement of this bird. Kay. Okay. I
4: don't think it.
0: Because they have to work quite quickly, I'm just going to step away for a moment or two so that they can finish all the bird ringing that they need to do and then release them out into this rewilded landscape. And it's a way of managing the land that obviously works tremendously well across this uh, welt of clay soils, marginal lands. It's not going to happen on every farm across the country, obviously, but here, it works well and the proof of that is in the abundance of wildlife and you know in a way the restorative feeling I have now at the end of the day having spent time in this regenerated rewilded landscape
4: so this one's finished I've checked the, the wing measurement that Penny did and uh, <gasps> she was one mil short
1: oh, always <laughs> the case oh, I've still got a whole year to get that one millimeter extra.
4: So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this one now uh, we'll just let him go and would you like to let one go
0: oh I'd love to is that is yeah that's fine I've got no.
4: by the leg. so if you put those two fingers so either
0: forefinger and oh and
4: then that's it my
0: hand round its body
4: and then if you just place them on the palm it's of your other hand it's the
0: warmth and the softness of it tony and it's just the twitch of its head movement ever so slightly and off it goes <laughs> in a <the> chippy oh <laughs> that was a special moment thank you that's right. that's
4: fine